Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. We're so glad you have joined us for this audio sermon. You can find a full archive of sermons on our website, holycommunion.net. This sermon was preached by our seminarian, Emily Walker Cornetta, on the third Sunday of Lent, March 7th, 2021. In the name of the loving, liberating, life-giving God, amen. If like me, you grew up with a vision of Jesus who was meek and mild, gentle, friendly, you know, a good guy, you might have trouble reconciling him with the Jesus we meet in today's gospel lesson. The story of Jesus zealously, those at the scene might have said violently, turning over tables at the temple is told in all four gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's near the end, and it leads to the climax of Jesus's conflict with the temple authorities, his crucifixion. In the Gospel of John, it comes near the beginning, and it's something of an introduction to Jesus's ministry and identity. Whether it's a story of culmination or introduction, this scene at the temple has a place of narrative prominence in all of the Gospels. Something happens here that's important for us Jesus followers to understand. But what is it? What message can we, should we, discern today in this spectacle of destruction? In the Gospel of John, the story takes place during Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem, during the festival of Passover, and masses of pilgrims would have been pouring into the city to celebrate and sacrifice at the temple. Palestine, of course, as we know, was a Roman colony at the time, and historians paint a pretty bleak picture of life under Roman rule for most of Jesus's contemporaries. Palestine's economy was fueled by agriculture, but the land was hard to farm and the rain was unreliable, so harvests were relatively scant, even in good years. And on top of that, the harvest people were able to eke out of the land was taxed heavily by Rome. And the majority of people who worked the land didn't own that land in the first place. They worked the lands as tenants, sharecroppers, or hired laborers. They labored for the owner's profit. And under the system, which is not so dissimilar to the system we've built in this country, the rich got richer off the backs of the poor. And here's where we get to the temple. It wasn't only the Roman elite, the colonizers who were profiting from an exploitative economy. In Jerusalem, there was an elite class of priests who themselves were closely allied with the Roman Empire, who operated a similar economy in and around the temple. The buying of sacrifices, the sheep, the cattle, and the pigeons we heard about in today's text, was itself an integral part of worship of God, according to the law. And Jesus was an observant Jew. His ire wasn't directed at this sacrificial system itself. But all those transactions that took place at the temple, which peaked at festival time, the giving donations to the temple, purchasing animals for sacrifice, the collection of fines people owed the temple, the leasing of lands that the temple owned, the conferral of loans from the temple's huge repository of wealth, the temple tithe, which required farmers to transfer a hefty amount of their harvest each year to support the already wealthy temple priests, the temple tax, which was a set sum owned, uh, owed by every adult each year, all of this functioned at this time to wring from the poor the little money they had to make this elite class of high priests even richer. 
Another ancient Jewish text believed to have been written actually in Jesus' lifetime curses this elite group of temple priests for eating the goods of the poor under the guise of compassion and piety. This elite class of leaders pretended to be for the people, but they ran the temple economy in a way that extorted them. So this is the scene that Jesus walks into. It's not insignificant that it's Passover, the festival when Israelites celebrate their liberation from bondage for a life of freedom with God. The temple is teeming with pilgrims from Palestine and the diaspora who've come to make these voluntary offerings to pay the required tithes and tax to exchange money for which they were charged a fee. And Jesus walks into this market, which is feeding before his eyes on the goods of the poor. And he makes a whip out of ropes and lets it loose on the representatives and symbols of this godforsaken economy. Tables go flying, coins scatter across the ground, the merchandise stampedes away, the owners on their tails. This is furious, calculated destruction. It's judgment. And not judgment on a few bad apples, a handful of corrupt actors, and an otherwise decent system. It's God's judgment on an institution that in the likeness of the empire with which it colludes, calls its obscene wealth from the pockets of the poor, and as it does, calls itself the temple of the living God. Into the heart of this system, whip in hand, Jesus lets loose God's resounding no. He does it by way of property damage, by temporarily arresting the accumulation of profit. His actions had real consequences for capital in that moment. And we can easily imagine the criticism that gurgled up from those who lost money on his account, that he was uneducated, ignorant, foolish, that he was provoking division and violence, that the real wrong here was the protest, not the injustice that prompted it. After the summer of 2020, this sounds familiar to us, right? But Jesus, blazing with clarity, he knows the real source of violence, which is deeper and more insidious than the mess he just made. His message is unequivocal. This economy of exploitation is incompatible with true worship of God. Afterwards, Jesus is confronted by the temple elites, the ones who run the system he just attacked. These priests are allies with Rome, and it's an alliance. Their alliance with Rome will ultimately put Jesus to death. And he predicts this in his reply to them. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. They can't imagine what he's talking about. It took 46 years to build this temple, they respond. The temple was the bedrock of political, social, economic, and ritual life in Jerusalem. Its status as an institution was a given. And it's this givenness of reality that the high priests appeal to, the apparent indestructibility of things as they are. Jesus' reply, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He's alluding to his death and resurrection, but I hear in it the suggestion that systems, institutions, and structures, even the ones 
maybe especially the ones we can't imagine life without, they can die and be made new. In this season of Lent, we attune ourselves to God's no, reverberating in the world, and we discipline ourselves to respond to it. We ask, what are the systems that structure our world, those we perhaps accept as given, to which God says zealously, furiously, no? We ask, where in our common life do we find Jesus, can we find Jesus, turning over tables? Where might we be called to do it on Jesus' behalf? And importantly, with courage, we ask, how are those systems that God condemns, the inequality, injustice, and exploitation we call sin, how are they thriving among us, the body of Christ, we who are ourselves, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the temple of God. I have been thinking in light of the first commandment we heard read this morning, you shall have no other gods before me, about ways that my habits, investments, and values betray what I really worship. I may not, in word, praise the system of capital that so structures and stratifies our common life, but that doesn't mean I don't worship it. This system determines who has access to necessities like adequate housing, nutritious food, working utilities, healthcare, vaccines, as is now apparent, and who doesn't. How much do I trust this system, which was built to sustain inequality, to supply my needs and define my desires? How much do I accept its logic of scarcity and competition? To what degree do I live my everyday life capitulating to and even reproducing its terms? What vision of flourishing do I spend more time, effort, and money pursuing? The one that's advertised to me incessantly, that promises me happiness if I feed it more and more of my money while my neighbors go hungry? Or God's? In the scene just prior to, the, to that at the temple, Jesus is at a wedding in Cana in Galilee, not so far from his hometown of Nazareth. Compared to Jerusalem, it's a place of scarcity. And we know this story. When the, when the wine runs out, he takes six jars of water and turns them into wine. More wine, a lot of wine, and good wine, something like 150 gallons worth. Way more than enough to go around, at no cost to anyone. And this is not an isolated sign. Later in John, again at Passover, Jesus takes five loaves and two fish and feeds 5,000 hungry Galileans with 12 baskets left over. Again, abundance for all at no cost. And again, at the very end of John, the resurrected Jesus finds his traumatized disciples back at their jobs, fishing all night with nothing to show for it. At his word, they put down their nets and they catch 153 large fish and they sit down together and have breakfast. At Passover, Israelites remember being led by God in the wilderness, having been drawn out from the only economy they ever knew to be fed directly by the hand of God with manna from heaven. 
The work of disciplining ourselves to heed God's no to the violence of our present economy, the discipline of Lent, it's not an end unto itself. It's to ready us for the work of tearing down and turning over and for the joy of receiving and sharing the bounty of God's yes. God's yes is a world in which everyone has their fill, in which hoarding and competition are absurdly out of place. God says yes to jugs of wine so numerous that they line the walls at a wedding untouched. God says yes to an indecent amount of leftovers, to a shared meal where the last are first and the first are last and where all have enough. When the tables are turned over and the market is empty, there is space, even for a moment, for something new. This Lent, let's invite God to discipline our imaginations, our habits, and our allegiances toward the creation of a new world. Let us welcome Christ as he turns over altars of capital in our hearts, our communities, our nation, our world. Let's believe that the systems that do violence to us and our neighbors may, with God's help and our hands, be torn down. And let us prepare to welcome the resurrected Christ, in whose economy there, was, there is always more than enough to go around. Amen.